Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. We are in season three. This is episode three, uh, where we're going to be talking about um, part or book three of Madame Mayo, uh, titled Malcaris. Uh, so, uh, just as a reminder, we are a Redwall read along podcast. So, uh, if you haven't checked out episodes uh, one and two of season three, that's a great place to start. Uh, but enough about that. You are you are listening to this. You know who we are. You also know me as your co-host, Colin, and with me, as always, is Trevor. How you doing, Trev? I'm doing pretty good. Had a great week. Yeah, yeah. Got to see you not too long ago with it being uh, Thanksgiving week. That was pretty awesome. Good to see you in the flesh. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this book three, but then we were very quick to cut off the conversation because uh, we wanted to make sure that I was in, in, in a mic. Uh, so I have been biting my tongue on a lot of these things that I can't wait to talk to you about. Uh, but before we get to that, I I always got to ask you the question, uh, what have you been reading? I've been reading all kinds of stuff, as I normally do. Uh, most recently, I just finished a book called Ghost Girl by Ali Malinenko. It's a middle grade horror book about a girl who can see ghosts and there's something wrong with her town and she can't entirely put her finger on what it is so she goes you know kind of on this uh little journey to try to figure out exactly what is causing so much uh you know kind of grief and distress in her town it's honestly a lot more than i can kind of put into words because it's it does so much kind of emotional heavy lifting uh, but it's a fantastic book. And if you are listening to this podcast because you like middle grade fiction, I highly recommend Ghost Girl. It is a fantastic novel. Yeah, sounds sounds interesting. Um, and who is that the author again? That is Ali Malinenko. Awesome. That's that's great. Um, I haven't really been reading too much, uh, <laughs> like, like I've said in these previous episodes, um, as of late, Redwall has really just been the majority of my reading. Um, but I did jump back into, um, the short story collection, Paper, uh, Menagerie by Ken Liu. Uh, that's something I started probably over a month ago. I mean, I think it was back in season one or season two that I started that. Yeah. And I was like, man, I don't really know why I stopped reading this. So I picked that up again and it's great. I, I really enjoy it. Um, I, I really want to read more short fiction um, and uh, even um, short fiction collections are, are really awesome. So um, that's one that I highly recommend, even though I haven't finished it yet. Yeah. Ken Liu does a lot of really good stuff. Uh, I've actually been reading a little bit of Ted Chang myself, um, reading Exhalation and other stories. It's really good stuff for sure. Yeah, well, this uh, isn't short fiction, uh, but <laughs> uh, it is a little bit of a shorter section. But man, do we have a lot to talk about in book three of Madame Ayo, uh, Malchris. Uh, so what do you say we jump into it? Sounds great to me. Let's do it. So in book three, Malchoris, we start in chapter 38, where Matthias's group comes up with a plan to zip line across the bottomless gorge with the help of Sir Harry. 
As Slagar continues further on toward Malchoris, Matthias's group draws closer to his trail. I don't think there's a whole lot I have to add to this chapter. It's pretty straightforward. We're just kind of setting up book three. And what we know about book three is that we are going to have a big confrontation in Malchoris. And that's, you know, kind of it. There's a bit of ingenuity on behalf of the different Redwallers. You know, Jess really comes into play here and shows her her knack for you know getting places like she's the climber of the group and i feel like this is another instance in which jess really earns her place in the party um so it's a cool moment for her but you know other than that i don't know that there's a whole lot to add to this chapter yeah i definitely agree i don't actually have any notes on this um except that the yeah the, the fact that jess really is the star of the show here and um we have some um, very clever Jake's maneuvering that happens in order to get to get them across. Um, I say that with ton in cheek because I don't really fully understand what the purpose of having to get like reattach or um, I guess hoist up the remnant of the bridges without them like directly crossing it. I assuming it's so that Jess can swing across and like hop onto it and climb up because she has no other way to climb. But it just seemed, I don't know, it seemed uh, uh, like a little bit of a, um, a, a, a divergence, let's say, in their main quest. Yeah, it's just another hurdle, right? Because Slagar kind of cut them off from being able to traverse the bridge. Like he, he chopped the bridge down. And so Jess is the one who kind of figures out a way for them to all get across. And that involves you know, grabbing the remnants of, of the bridge, basically, and creating this kind of zip line using uh, Orlando's axe, right? Like, to give them enough height to be able to zip line over. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought as well. Yeah, it's just some, some creative problem solving, I think, from the Woodlanders. Um, but other than that, I mean, this is kind of the final hurdle that they have before getting into Malchoris, as we'll see. So um, I, I think that, again, it, you know, it's just kind of here as another obstacle, but I think this is the last, you know, kind of like major obstacle uh, on their journey. And I think it sets up, you know, the, what's, what's going to happen for book three. So in chapter 39, back at Redwall, the Corvids make an attempt to take the Martin Tapestry, which leads to a bloody confrontation between factions. After an, in an initial stalemate, four moles tunnels allow the Red Wallers to counterattack, which allows them to safely steal their tapestry back. As Mangas explains to Ironbeak that he still cannot see the future, the remaining five Sparrow Warriors return in time to eavesdrop. The scouts report their intelligence back to the Redwallers, and Cornflower dons Matthias's armor in a cunning ruse she hopes will give them an advantage. Yeah, so I think this chapter is pretty interesting because it kind of goes to show um, some of the things that uh, General Ironbeak is picking up that the rest of the Corvid crew are not, which is the importance of the tapestry, which he kind of hatches at the very end of uh, part two. Um, however, I think that this this um, tapestry um, uh, heist 
happened so quickly that I kind of feel like, what was the the point of this? Like the counterattack has sprung um, and uh, they come up with this idea in order to steal the armor, but or sorry, in order to don the armor. But it's really just based off of the rumor that Mangus can't see because because Martin is kind of blocking his um, future perception. I, I, I don't know what we want to call that soft magic, but I just think that you know, building up to this event from the prior book, um, I really thought this was going to be a way longer thread than it was. And I was a little disappointed that it um, resolved so quickly. Yeah, I think we, we will probably talk a lot more about General Ironbeak in our big wrap up episode. And I'm really interested in hearing what all of our friends think of this entire saga i too felt like it was really quickly resolved but i do think that it's interesting this idea that the red wallers are now armed with this information that mangas can't see through the future because martin is blocking his visions because it gives them an angle to start you know kind of waging some psychological warfare and demoralize a lot of General Ironbeak's troops. And that is kind of the movement of the Red Wallers in book three against uh, General Ironbeak. They all work together to try to demoralize his faction instead of just beating them in an outright military strike. Right. I will say that it is cool to see that the Red Wallers kind of come together in, in unity in defending the tapestry. Um, and, and even the the hatching of this plan, in a way, is it, they're all united for it. But we we quickly we quickly learn that that falls apart. So it also um, I don't want to spoil too much for our review episode, but um, I just I couldn't help but be reading this chapter and kind of thinking, what's what is the point of this? <laughs> like, what what is um, this obstacle set up, and then it's so quickly resolved. And then we get this new campaign to taunt the Corvids with the armor um, that it just kind of felt like um, I, I'm going to equate it to uh, Ginger Beer's farm. Like it just is kind of like, well, I, I guess this serves something, but why are we spending time doing this if, um, yeah, why are we sp- spending time doing this? I guess it gives the Red Waller something to do. And um, that that's probably Jake's point. Yeah, I I think this is definitely just the Red Wallers have to do something, right? There, there are these two kind of uh, not even parallel campaigns, just you know, kind of simultaneous campaigns going on. And I, I think that I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll again, I'll save a lot more of my thoughts for the big review episode. But um, I, I like the aspect of Cornflower donning Matthias's armor. I feel like we get a lot more Cornflower in Book Three than we've seen in either of the previous, you know, parts. Um, and I think that this presents a little bit of a redemption arc for Cornflower in my mind, knowing how little she contributed in the first book. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of on board with this, you know, like Cornflower warrior spirit kind of thing. But at the same time, I do feel like, you know, the threat to the tapestry is just, it's resolved so quickly. Um, I think that the way that the Red Wallers wage their campaign against General Ironbeak is really interesting because it is 
so much more about kind of subterfuge, about espionage, about psychological warfare, as opposed to the literal warfare that we end up seeing from Matthias's group. I mean, he just went through a massive battle with incredible losses. You know, only five sparrows make it back from, from that big fight. And I think that that's juxtaposed really well with this occupation from the Corvids uh, and the Redwallers' kind of seeming inability to confront them outside of these kind of uh, like subterfuge ways. Yeah, I apologize. I didn't have this uh, tracked in my notes, but is this the point where General Ironbeak also kills one of the magpies because the magpie is like talking back? Um and he slays him. I'd have to. I'd have to reference that in. The I can't chapter, remember but... if that's in this chapter or if it's in a previous chapter. I do know that he he does. I don't think he kills one of the magpies, but he does kill like a rook or or something like that. Like one of his one of his soldiers. Yeah. I yeah. I, I, I couldn't remember if it's because he gets mad about. Um, he gets mad that the tapestry that the counterattack they are able to grab the tapestry and and. Um, He's he's mad about that, or if it's he gets mad about what Cornflower is doing. But regardless, yeah. I, I I I do think that um, when that happens, it kind of goes to show, and like it kind of defeats the whole purpose of um, General Ironbeak also trying to rescue you know people on, on his team, like the hostage exchange that we see, and then he quickly is his temper gets so um, he gets so excited that he then kills one of the Corvids. It just seemed like okay, what was the point of that? Like. If you're going to go and do this hostage ex- exchange and then be back at the stalemate, but then you, you kill one of your own, like you, it, his, his methods don't really make a whole lot of sense. And I think this is a, an example of that. Like he wants to go after the tapestry because he thinks it's important. However, he doesn't really have any plan to, to then get the tapestry or any plan of what to do. Like he wasn't expecting any kind of resistance at all. I, I kind of think it just shows how, um, maybe, um, like boastful or how um he doesn't think that the redwallers really are competent uh, and in doing so he kind of reveals his own incompetence mm. yeah i could definitely see that i also see a lot of his flaw being his faith in superstition um as much as he's not willing to believe what is going on with the whole const or not constants the whole cornflower uh you know ghost thing um he does let it unsettle him quite a bit and and he relies so heavily on mangas his seer to inform him of the correct course of action that he's kind of blind without it well, in chapter 40, Matthias's company approach the Badger and the Bell, which is a rock formation close to their southern destination. Here they encounter a doomsaying old hare who acts as an ill omen for what's to come further up the trail to Slagar. Indeed, not too far ahead, Slagar prepares his vermin for his departure promising leadership of the caravan to several others in a secret plot. That night, Nadaz and his massive army of gray rats subdue the slaves and escort Slagar and Vich from their camp. 
All right, if I was too hard on the last chapter, this is where I'm going to start to really praise Jake's because this chapter is phenomenal. Um, the first note that I have is that the appearance of this hair, which I do not believe we get the hair's name, but the, par- the appearance of this old hair um, basically with an omen is terrifying. Like, um, I, 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 I love Basil. I love the hairs. You know, this is uh, I, I'm on team hair for sure. Um, but I was genuinely unsettled by this this encounter. And um, he gives over a token um, like a kind of like a, a charm on a bracelet of, I believe, a mouse head. Correct. Um, he yeah, hands that right. over to the party and uh, as a as a token for um, basically feeding him. And then he's on his way. And the whole time I was like, is this an apparition? What is this? This is so bizarre and just out of left field. We have a lot of characters that show up uh, in Redwall kind of uh, unexpectedly. Um, but this is definitely the most frightening. I, I was I was chilled to the bone by this this appearance. Um, the other thing is the I really love the kind of um, wheeling and dealing the the setting up of the, the setting up for the fall that Slagar does uh, with his um, remaining slavers in preparation of uh, Nadaz coming and stealing um, stealing everyone. Uh, sorry, stealing the slave line. So I, I like that he kind of goes to each of his uh, sub- subordinates or the lieutenants or whatever, how we want to classify them and says like, hey, by the way, you're you're going to have to take over for me when I leave. I'm going to leave the command to you. Make sure that no one else supersedes you. And then he essentially goes to the same person to do that. Except there's one the one person who he talks to that um, really stands out and that's bitch where he says i'm going to take you with me and if you just follow what i do uh then you're going to be you know you'll basically be in command um and so he gives vich very different instructions than everyone else uh which you know we we learn is him trying to kind of set up the the scapegoat for um what's going to happen to him sorry what's going to happen to slagar yeah, I, I think this is another one of those instances where we get to see just how cunning Slagar is and and one of the, one of the reasons why he's one of the best villains of the series. You know, he knows how to manipulate the people around him into doing exactly what it is that he wants them to do. And in this circumstance, he's he's kind of setting up different factions so that they'll eliminate themselves so he doesn't really have to worry about any kind of pay structure or any anything of the sort once uh the work is is done uh Ah, that's interesting yeah i think you're right i kind of read it and interpreted as he was setting up this distrust with each other to the to the point where i didn't really think that they would actually kill each other but more so that they would be so distracted with their own power structure or whatever that they just purely wouldn't pursue slagar like i I didn't know that uh but i think you're totally right on that he definitely was setting this up as this uh internal (laughs) fighting that would happen that would basically cover his trail yeah yeah it's it's what makes him so diabolical (laughs) so in chapter 41 we come back to to moss flower and we see that cornflower dons matthias's armor and with the help of some red wall theatrics manages to put some fear in general iron beaks soldiers 
Again, yeah, so more we kind of preface this. Yeah, we kind of preface this in the previous uh, discussion here about this whole kind of scheme that Cornflower has. Um, and we see this repeated along a lot of the visits, revisits that we have as to what the Red Wallers are doing. At first, I really thought that this was it, it was clever. And I, and I do like the spotlight that Cornflower gets without committing war crimes. Like, that is kind of nice to see. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> I... I I think that this is where I started to like doze off a little bit in reading the book. You know what I mean? Like I, I just feel like this, there's so many more interesting things going on. And um, not that I don't like Cornflower as a character. Um, this first part is interesting, but as we see later on, as this kind of scheme um, repeats, I'm like, okay, you know, we got the joke. We, we understand, you know, this uh, we're doing this again on night two and night three. And so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to really have a lot to contribute on these Redwall, you know, chapter visits purely because I feel I, I I think my my feelings on it are just like it is a little meandering um, compared to the really exciting stuff that's happening in Malchris. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I have a few additional thoughts that we'll discuss as we go along, but I don't have very much to contribute to a lot of these little Kind of interludes. So in chapter 42, Slagar's remaining crew fight for power, leaving the majority of their number slain. Matthias and company catch up to the group and capture them for information. Without much clue as to where Slagar went with the slaves, Matthias turns to the prophecy delivered from Redwall and discovers important clues that will take them to the end of their journey. Uh, this This chapter is is pretty cool simply because I like that we're getting these bits and pieces of, um, of Malchus through this. Um, uh, it's the, the prophecy that's taken from Redwall from Abbas Germain specifically that she kind of leaves as a remnant from for Loam hedge. And we're getting a little bit about that and we're getting these small little clues as to what that is. Um, and I think that this is a very engaging puzzle. Like we've kind of seen these environmental, like, oh, here's the riddle. How does that convey and stuff like that? Um, but I think it's really cool that the the uh, company starts to understand that maybe the puzzle itself is not up to date as to where the environment is. And they kind of start to piece those together with understanding where this large, large sentinel is and how it maybe has... Um, you know, the, the shadow for it has shifted based off of um, where they are in the season. Like there's a, just a lot of considerations that Jake's includes in their dialogue uh, that makes this feel a lot more grounded as a puzzle. And I, and I think it's really cool because we're building up to Malkers, right? Like we all can see yeah. that that's happening. Uh, that's really exciting. And then we also know are trying like I would I remember reading this um, just, you know, not too long ago, but reading this thinking like, how the heck does this actually tie back tie back into Lomhedge? Because we know that there, there's a connection there, but like, you know, are they going to just, <laughs> how's that going to work? So, um, yeah, I, I, again, my, my priorities shift so much from what the Red Wallers are doing to this, that I'm like really invested in this side of the story. Um, and I love to see these puzzles come to life. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. In, Chapter 43, Matameo and the other slaves wake up somewhere deep underground 
and are woken by Nadaz and Slagar. Slagar accompanies Nadaz for an audience with Malkaris, who denies Slagar payment for his recent efforts. Vich is enslaved by Malkaris, and Slagar is taken on a tour of the new underground kingdom of Malkaris. Meanwhile, above ground, Matthias solves the final clues to discover where Malkaris lies and discovers that Malkaris is none other than Loamhedge, which some time past must have sunk underground after a terrible earthquake. They prepare to enter at dawn, and meanwhile, rumors of the ghost of Martin spread quickly through Ironbeak's troops, and Cornflower dons her disguise again to spread further fear amongst Ironbeak's forces. I have so much to say about this Slagar Malkaris Vich situation and what we find out here. Um, but for the sake of time, Trevor, you should definitely take this one first. Yeah, I, oh gosh, to, to get into it, let's start with the big revelation that Malkaris is Loam Hedge. Um, but that, that was a mind boggling discovery when I first read this book some 20, whatever years ago, but I haven't given it a whole lot of thought since. And now that I'm a little bit older and I can do a little bit more of the analysis here, I love how Jake's sets this up for us. He gives us a whole bunch of riddles and clues that I think retroactively I've changed my mind. I like them a lot more <laughs> in, in retrospect because um, it it's all pointing back to Loam Hedge, right? Like the whole experience, the whole uh, d- sense of discovery of Abbas Germain's, um, you know, resting place is, is all to hint back at this journey toward Loam Hedge. And even though we don't know necessarily exactly what happened that forced Abbas Germain and the other, um, you know, like Redwall founders out of Loam Hedge, we get a sense of, of what has happened, at least in the time since, which is this giant earthquake that shifts it underground. And so Malkaris, you know, suddenly takes on this, like inverse kind of um, mirror of Redwall. Whereas Redwall is this fortress uh, above ground, you know, this place of equality, this place of um, peace and, and acceptance and community. It is the opposite in Malkaris. Malkaris is this underground kingdom where none of them live you know, above ground. It's it's a fortress under the ground occupied by hordes and hordes of rats in this kind of like weird social mega structure of a dictator. And there is no acceptance. We see that Vich is, you know, brought in like, hey, maybe Vich could be, you know, a member of your Malkaris army or whatever. And Malkaris is like, no, I don't need more people in my army i want slaves you know there's no sense of acceptance whereas like you know sir harry comes in and is like do you think that maybe there's a place for me in redwall and matthias is immediately like yes we welcome everyone 
it is the exact opposite where um, people come in and and are looking for you know some some sense of of place in Malchoris and that's just not how it goes. It's a, a kingdom of terror. So I I love this dynamic. I love this this kind of converse mirror effect. Yeah, I definitely do too. And the revelation of Lomhedge didn't wasn't a surprise to me at all. But I will say it's exciting to see the confirmation that this is Lomhedge. This is the uh, built uh, Malchus is built on the ruins, the kind of sunken ruins of Lomhedge. And I think that that's it. I I'm in a hundred percent agreement that it it makes the um, riddle from Ab- Abistramain way more exciting because we we now have that connection and that uh, we can finally see the uh, the the end of the riddle, right? Like we we the riddle is now solved and we kind of understand how this fits into the world better. And I think that it um, just really improves my experience with the riddle overall. Uh, so if you listen to part one where I'm just bashing on it, uh, this is post-calling, you know, after reading it, saying that it's uh, it's actually pretty cool. I do like that a lot. Um, now, the conversation that Slagar has with Vitch, I find so fascinating because he says to Malkaris, like, hey, I thought you wanted to take him in because he was a rat. Like, at least I tried. And I think that that in itself is the like you said, Trevor, the antithesis to what uh, Redwall is, because he's saying like, you don't even want to take in your own kind. Like, you know, I thought you would like, you know, slag rather cruel thinking like, ah, I was going to give Vitch a chance. Like maybe he would be good for you. Um, and it all, I think it also just goes to show to the absolute cruelty of Malkris, uh, the, the being Malkris, who is essentially saying like, even to the, the, the loyal servant Slagar, he says, you know, get out of my way and go and I'll think about it and I'll call you back when I'm ready to talk to you about it. And I think, uh, you know, introducing him to the city uh, where he's able to go around and see, um, which uh, I believe no one has seen. If you're a slave or if you're in the army, you're that's the only opportunity you get to see it. But Malgris has really not been revealed to anyone. So my, my big question is... Um, why is is Malchus being built if there's literally no purpose of there's no inhabitants for it? You know what I mean? Like it's really just being built for Malchus as this grand city, um, but it's of pain and punishment and in you know in the in the slavery. Like I don't even think the city is really serving the army. The army's there to serve malchris you know what i mean like it's the complete opposite to redwall like there's really no purpose for this besides cruelty that's the i i think that that's what jake's trying to tell us right i i want to bring this up with william and tiffany but this gets into a little bit of what i actually know about jake's politics because jake's jake's himself was very much more on the kind of socialist uh avenue of of politics the socialist angle of politics and i think this ties into a little bit about at least what i understand of his politics and how he organized we look at malchoris and and malchoris is absolutely the kind of character that is there to build something massive that is his and his alone and is never to be used for any kind of like communal whatever it is a testament to his greatness and yet it's it's fruitless right like it's just like you say it's pain and labor for the aggrandizement of 
a solitary figure and that in and of itself is evil and that's definitely something that we see a lot of in the real world you know we see millionaires building these huge mansions you know these these um just kind of titanic living spaces that no one occupies um look at your travel channel documentaries and you see this happening all the time where there is a huge space that could be used communally but it is not used for that at all it is used for this kind of weird ego stroking um that i think is is quite gross and it stands in direct opposition to the function and purpose of a place like Redwall Abbey, which is a massive structure in and of itself, a kind of self-contained unit, but exists for the community, exists to serve not just those in Redwall, but to serve all of Mossflower. If you're an inhabitant of Mossflower or really anywhere else in this world, you are welcome at Redwall. It, it exists for the purpose of that communal identity. And I, I think that's really what Jake's is kind of laying down here is goodness, you know, kind of comes from this ability to see community and to build that community up. And evil is that opposition. Evil is the selfishness that leads to self-aggrandizement uh, with no real sense for building a community. Yeah, and Slagar, Slagar's deal with Malchris, too, is that he will basically be able to have all this space above Loam Hedge, which is very fruitful. Like, there are natural orchards, I believe, and yeah. um, there uh, there's plenty of um, good soil there because we see that there's a lot of greenery and there's a river not too far away. Like, it's a great place to basically build another red wall. And the fact that it's all underground is, you know, Malchus is all underground also goes to show it's like, what's yeah, you're totally right. This is, um, this is purely for Malchus, the, the person um, it's not to serve anyone else. And, uh, but the deal with Slagar is that it, that he can build everything above. Um, however, um, that would also have to serve Malchus. Like it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't really be Slagar's own. It would be in order to serve him. And I think that's really interesting that Malchus sends Slagar away. Um, it's definitely a power move saying like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to honor that. Um, you know, go and do your own thing for a little bit and I'll call you when, when you're ready for your reward. Uh, and Slagar hates that because he then goes and starts snooping around Malchus, the, the kingdom of Malchus to try to find, um like uh he, he i think he spots the hidden door right where th they're kind of escorting him through the city he sees that there's a hidden door that can be used as an escape route um and so he's he's taking notes of some of the weaknesses or vulnerabilities of this kingdom to exploit be purely because um he he knows that you know malchus doesn't have his best interests in mind so why would he repay the favor <laughs> you know like why would he align with this knowing that um, that his interest, I mean, his reward isn't even granted uh, so far. So, and we can see that this is, man, this is a common trend with a lot of uh, Jake's vermin characters, right? They're ultimately always self-serving. And one of the things that they do is just look to backstab each other, you know, at the moment they can. The power structure of evil is always very self-serving. And as a result, 
there is no true allyship in any of this. There, there's only a kind of rule by fear or rule by convenience. And once either of those two things falter, either it becomes inconvenient to continue serving or you find that serving no longer serves your interest it's it's time to make a political move or a, a, you know a, a violent move an act of violence in order to usurp the power for yourself it's always self-serving and i think that's one of the reasons why it's always destined to fail right we know that whether it's malchris or whether it's slagar or whether it's nadaz like there's this kind of weird hierarchy where they're always looking to stab each other in the back to get more power and Slagar knows up front he has no intention of serving Malchus for very long at all. He's only going to do it until he knows that he has the the military might or he's got the angle he needs in order to take power away from Malchus and consume it for himself. Yeah, it's kind of the idea that like evil corrupts evil, right? Like he knows he knows that this is going to there's going to have to be a play at some point. So he's just kind of staying his hand in order to do that. Um, you kind of noted this in the previous chapter, but um, Malchus's army is huge, too. It's ginormous. Oh, yeah. uh, we see and when they kind of come through the camp and they um, uh, they everyone goes to sleep and then they steal the slave line. Um, it's, it's like a countless army and, and it's, a it's massive. So obviously Slagar would want to be, um, very tactful in when would be the appropriate time. And, uh, but he's also being subservient because he wants his reward, right? Like he has his own angle, but then he also knows that his angle, he can't do anything with it yet. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, in chapter 44, back in Moss flower, a red kite approaches Redwall, severely wounded. At Redwall, Constance is feeling good about sowing discord amongst Ironbeak's troops, and Ironbeak is having difficulty rallying his troops' confidence. Meanwhile, as Matthias gathers his allies for their descent into Malchus, Matameo galvanizes his resolve against the rats of the underground kingdom. Yeah, I again, I apologize because my notes on the uh, what's going on with the Red Wallers are pretty poor. And I think that that is purely because I just was just yeah not as interested in the storyline. So um, that's bad hosting on my part. But I believe this is the instance where um, General Ironbeak assaults uh, uh, Mangus, right? His seer. Because he's there's so much discourse going on within um, his ranks about this ghost, and um, he's he's disappointed that uh, Mangus himself is basically saying like he kind of lied to him, saying that you know your um, uh, your assurance, the assurance of the prophecy of taking over um, Redwall, is not as clear. Um, you know, this maybe as the ghost from his visions, but then he also uh, is really disappointed that Mangus does not dispel um, the idea that this ghost is a real ghost or if it is, um, you know, a trick from the Red Wallers. And so he makes it very clear that that is not the support that he wanted and assaults his own seer. Um, he, he beats him up and I believe that he wounds him, not mortally, but enough that the other, um, Corvids or, or some of the rooks 
are like, dang, what happened to him? You know, they, they reference, uh, I don't, I don't know what, why, why this happened to him. Yeah. It, it, again, this kind of leans back on general iron beaks, um, fatal flaws, right? He's ultimately superstitious, but at the same time, he doesn't want to believe in that superstition when it does not serve him. Um, and so he, he kind mm, of yeah. holds this rank where he's like, I want you to say the things that I want to hear. And Mangas and some of the others kind of find that out through violence. It It is ultimately going to be General Ironbeak's downfall, right? We know that his insistence on pursuing a line of action that will not turn out well for him um you know is his stubbornness is ultimately going to get him and and all of his cronies killed yeah and i think it i think you hit on something that i'd love to talk about more maybe in the review episode is this idea of like his selective use of um of uh prophecy or like his selective use of mysticism or soft magic or whatever we're still classifying this as mm -hmm. because he really doesn't like to hear that this could be a ghost. And I, I, he's, he's really starting to act like Sarmina a little bit. You know how like Sarmina would start to get like erratic when she believed that there was water pouring in through the walls. You know, I think this is very similar to that where he's starting to get erratic because it, what if this vision did exist? Uh, and Constance is pretty clever um, in working with Cornflower too. I think it's Constance that throws the, um, the yeah. um, kind of blanket over Cornflower that hides her so that it makes it seem like she kind of apparates and then disappears. And um, so it's, it is really clever to see this scheme working to the, the degree that it's working. Um, however, I, I, I won't, I, well, we can talk about it later. Cause I have, I have very strong p opinions of how, um, this, um, uh, this red kite, um, fits into the general iron beak story. So we'll get to that a little bit later. So I'm going to, I'll just put a pin on that for now. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's talk about Madame Mayo for just a brief moment though, because we have not seen a whole ton of Madame Mayo out of book one. And now we're starting to see, you know, Madame Mayo in a little bit more of this leadership role. And there's just a bit more Madame Mayo in book three than I think there was in book two. So touching base on Madame Mayo's kind of like rallying against Malchus right now, you know, his, his setting his resolve that he's not going to kowtow to, you know, this bizarre, uh, you know, terrifying leader or what have you like he he's going to stand firm in his um rebellion you know against this uh new oppressive force so what's your your read on matameo um i like it honestly i i think that we're we are starting to see him be a lot more hardened and in a way that you know everyone else um i guess except matthias and crew are um not you know they're they're really subservient to um malchris matameo and and alma and um tess are all very uh uh 
they're very uh, secure in the resolve to resist Malchris. And we even see that with, uh, I think they're trying to whisper to some of the other slaves who are working in the kingdom as they're kind of being brought up before Malchris. And everyone ignores <laughs> Matameo and crew because um, because they're subservient. They know that if something happens to them, that um, one of the slavers is going to hurt them. And so um, they are just can they're totally complacent. So I think it's really contrary to what we see in the whole environment. And I do think I, I'm glad that you bring it up because it is a, an important character development for Matameo. I think we see so much more of that a little bit later. So, you know, in later mm-hmm. chapters, I think it's good to kind of point out. Um, one thing I did want to bring up, though, is with Matthias and crew um, that they capture some of the remaining weasels and stoats from Slagar's group. And they bring them up to um, the entrance to Lumhedge and say, um, we're going to go in, sorry, uh, in Malchris and say, we're going to go in, but you guys are going to go first. But then they have this kind of conversation. I think it's uh, within with Basil and um, with um, Harry, where they kind of say, you know, uh, it doesn't, what are we going to do once they get down there? Like they, they might start throwing elbows, but quite honestly, they may get in the way and the same with Harry. And so they come up with this plan to instead um, send them on their way. And Harry will be like, <laughs> I don't know, uh, a sniper in a tower, I suppose, if they try to make a run for it or try to disobey any of the orders. So I, I think this was a cool moment for Matthias because he kind of realizes like, you know, as much as I would love for him just to kick him down the stairs and they're the first ones to, you know, die in this this grand battle. Um, I think he understands that this really doesn't serve what they're trying to do or serve their efforts, which again is so contrary to what is going on in Malchris. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he even has the mercy or the foresight or however we want to define it um, to, to say like, yeah, this probably isn't the best move. So we should, we should try a different approach instead. Yeah. I mean, they put them on a similar, you know, kind of slave line, like, the children um but by by kind of asserting like we're gonna let you go (laughs) we're gonna let you instead of forcing you to to go down and do the dirty work and put yourselves in danger like slagar might do our kids you know yeah uh, yeah we're we're gonna be better than that and we're gonna you know push you out the door um to to go do your own thing i i do think that that's really interesting i see a lot in matameo at least at this moment um, of young Matthias and, and like the, the same kind of defiance that Madam or, or that Matthias um, kind of put up to Clooney. I, I see a lot of the same kind of um, resonance there in that kind of heroic spirit. So I, I, I like Madame Mayo in this chapter because I think I see Matthias in him most strongly you know, from this point forward. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I I didn't really think, I mean, it would make more sense to think of him like Matthias, but I definitely thought it was a little bit more like Martin, uh, like in uh, Moss Flower, when we see Martin directly oppose Verdaga Green Eyes. Like, I think that this is Mm -hmm. another example of that. Like this, this clear defiance in, in the face of clear and present danger or, you know, whatever. Um, I will say that I do think it's a little overshadowed with what else is going on. Like, I wish that Mm -hmm. we saw a little bit. I I, I wish that we spent a little bit more time in Malchris with Madameo. But um, 
correct me if I'm wrong. He doesn't know that Matthias is has is there. He doesn't know that that they're there yet, or um, he's not aware that they are so close to the trail. Yeah, he has um, no idea. The last he saw, uh, oh, that Matthias is dead. That's right, because he 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 thinks he thinks he died in the cave. Yeah. Did they? Did did Matthias? No, I don't, I don't think Matt Mayo has seen Matthias at all, right? I think, yeah, I, I, I think yeah. He, he is unaware of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in chapter 45, we come back to Redwall, and the red kite from the Western Plains arrives and is promptly attacked by Ironbeak's soldiers. Constance wages a rescue and together with the moles, manages to save the bird. Down in the cellars, they learn of its origins and name. It is Strike Red Kite from the West. So this is a Chekhov's gun, right? <laughs> we all read this and think, uh, so something's going to happen with this creature. Why else would Jake's be introducing this creature that's so far in the game, right? Like we, we can yeah. all kind of see that happening. I really like this um this idea of um general Ironbeak uh, when he kind of encounters um this red kite he knows that we have to seize uh the opportunity to kill this bird or we will be killed if this bird is healthy and i think it's a really cool glimpse into some of the animalistic natures like the bird of prey hierarchy that would exist in nature that we can kind of see carried over into this red wall world um, I'm going to tell a quick story. I, a red kite is a little bit different, but um, I did. I used to live in a, an apartment where um, there was just this tiny sliver of a window where a whole bunch of pigeons would be. And um, it was winter time. And one time the, the, I just didn't hear the pigeons. And I thought, well, maybe they went to sleep or something. And I looked out the window to find a red tailed hawk, which is a, a native hawk to where I'm at, um, which is a very aggressive bird of prey, had taken over this roost of, of pigeons or whatever we call it, a, a, a nest of pigeons and had killed all of them in my windowsill. And uh, so I look out the window to this just horrific view and with feathers going everywhere. And I was both equally um, disgusted, but just like uh, enchanted by this hawk. Like it was crazy to see in my window. And uh, that's how I learned about uh, the whole bird of birds of prey thing. So um, it, it was uh, quite a, a learning channel moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but reading about, uh, all this aside to say, reading about, um, strike, I couldn't help but think about, about that. Like, okay, something's going to happen with strike being here and there's going to be a, a power dynamic that happens. I mean, general iron beak sees it too. He's freaked out about it. And I think that it's outside of the graciousness of the red wallers to try to heal this bird that they are doing that, right? Like they can see that this could be a very powerful ally as well, but they're also um, committed to their, um, they, uh, they're committed to their uh, promise or o oath, or I'm not sure what the right term is um, in order to rehabilitate those who are in need. Yeah. I mean, the, this bird would absolutely be their natural predator, right? Like there's <laughs> no way uh, that this bird wouldn't eat every single one of the, well, maybe not the badger, but uh, you know, every one of the, the woodlanders, you know, in uh, Redwall. 
So I, I think once more, you know, it's just a juxtaposition of this good versus evil. You know, rehabilitation could mean something, you know, good and, and potentially mutually beneficial for all those involved. Um, and I do see Strike as a neutral party in some ways. You know, it it really could go either way whether she decides to attack the Red Wallers or not. And it's really just by the good nature of the Red Wallers in rehabilitating her and, and you know, kind of showing her kindness in what is otherwise a pretty cutthroat world. We, I don't think we've talked a lot about the world outside of Redwall Abbey, but it is vicious out there. <laughs> it seems like there's just all kinds of danger. And we've run into birds of prey before, like with the bat kingdom in moss flower where, uh, you know, you really just don't know what side of a conflict you're getting into. And maybe something like a, a red kite, you know, it, it might not be, necessarily evil but that doesn't mean that it's not dangerous yeah definitely i i i my interest is peaking at this point in the red waller story um we could talk about this more in the review episode um a huge complaint i have about jake's though is just the random introduction of characters um i mean we we we've seen that time and time again again in just the three books that we've read uh but this to me feels like one of the most egregious ones um so <laughs> when we have a review episode, know that I'll come in with some very hot takes as to uh, this kind of storytelling. Yeah. Well, in chapter 46, Slagar gets a promotion to manage Malchoris's affairs above ground. But before he can celebrate, he comes face to face with Orlando the Axe. A massive brawl ensues, with Matthias and the other Redwallers facing off against the great hordes of Malchoris. The battle is long and bloody, and Logalog is mortally wounded. Matthias challenges Nadaz to single combat in hopes of stalling time for the other Redwallers to escape, and Nadaz names his champion for the contest, Werit the monstrous slave master of Malchoris. Oh man, do I have a lot to say about this chapter. I know that you have a lot to say about this chapter too. So I'll start with like the first half and you can finish out the second half. This um, idea of the, the promotion for Slagar and um, what that means, uh, the kind of subservient, like Malchoris says to the Slagar, I'm going to give you what you want but you're going to go and build your kingdom and it will be directly under my rule plays into exactly what we talked about earlier. Like there, and of course, Slagar is not going to have anything to do with that. And he's already scheming. He's like, okay, I'll do that for now, but that's not going to happen. And he walks off with it, this smile on his face, believing that he's going to get the upper hand and who's there to absolutely bring him <laughs> back down to earth. It's Orlando, the ax. This interaction was so funny to me. Like I and Orlando's just ready to fight. He showed I mean, they're all ready to fight. But him going through first, him seeing Slagar, him being, you know, he's chased him since the prologue. <laughs> he's finally face to face <laughs> with him. This was such 
this is such a, a cool moment. Uh, if you're one that likes to do immersive reading, this is where you turn on, you know, some ACDC or something <laughs> like that for this fight because it's oh. about to get crazy. Yeah. It, oh man. There's okay. There's so much that I want to talk about. You know, I feel like this book is for the most part, pretty decently paced. I do think that the Redwall chapters breaks the pace of much of the book, um, especially in like book two, where a lot of stuff is happening with Matthias. I really feel like the story is with Matthias and the Redwall stuff is just there to try to break up some of that tension or just get you to read more because you're like, I got to know what happens to Matthias and, and his group. But you know, f say what you will, this is the payoff <laughs> for all of that waiting, right? And now we're finally going to get what it is that we want. And it's going to be this huge confrontation, uh, perhaps not directly between the Red Wallers and Slagar, but certainly the Red Wallers with Slagar's employer, Malchris. And uh, from this point forward, I felt like it was just full throttle. Like <laughs> Jake's just pulls out the blocks and turns on the, the jet engines and, and the rest of the book for at least for Matthias and company is just, uh, it's all adrenaline all the way down. Yeah, definitely. There's some key things that happen in here. Uh, one, the scale of this fight, I think is the biggest we've seen so far, even bigger than Clooney and his horde attacking Redwall in book one. Um, or in the first book of Redwall, um, this this scale seems so much bigger, and I but I can't help but feeling like how they're fighting underground is, is also very like tight. Like they're basically fighting in this large uh, opening above the city, um, kind of on a uh, what I imagine is like a cliff edge, right? And yep. so the the stakes are really high as waves and waves of. Uh, Nadaz's army comes up to attack them. So I feel like this is um, uh, somewhat claustrophobic purely because they just don't have a lot of, you know, places to run to or things to do. Like they're really having to stand their ground where they are. Um, the other thing, which I know that you have a lot of, a uh, lot of thoughts on is Logalog is mortally wounded. Um, this wound, I actually had to read back because I, I could, I was like, where how bad is this? Because he gets stabbed in the neck and it's so bad to the point where they can't really staunch the bleeding at all. And, and they, and they decide that they need to try to get log log out of there. Um, and he, his concern is, you know, typical log log fashion is not on himself. Um, he is, his concern is on the group and how the group is able to stand their ground. Um, and, uh, and, and then starts thinking about his succession. Um, this, really caught me off guard because I, I, out of everyone in the crew, I just really didn't see, maybe I'm naive. <laughs> Jake's <laughs> likes to break my heart with the uh, war beak in the previous chapter. But I just, I just felt like this happening with Logalog was, um, yeah, yeah there, there's, I'm really rooting for him at this point. I'm really rooting that he'll be able to pull through. Yeah, man. Uh, I mean, you can't go into a battle and, and just expect everybody to come out unscathed. And we do know that like people die. People die in this book. And um, man, a logalog getting stabbed in the throat. And then and then he's like, you know, I don't want to I don't get 
let's get get him out of here. I don't want him to die underground. Yeah, you know, I, this, I don't um, want to die underground. I think it 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 hit hard. I'm not gonna lie. I because I was like, man, what a yeah. thing to think about too. Like, I don't want to die underground either, and I'm a human, not even a a, a shrew, you know. Um, but the fact that he's yeah, he, his line is, I don't want to die underground. And they're like, okay, let's get him up to the surface. You know, you'll be fine. Oh man, it, it's hitting hard. Yeah. It's it's brutal. Uh, I I also just the whole Nadaz stepping up because we know him as the voice of Valkyris. Um, he's kind of like the second in line, and then all of a sudden he's just got this he just this massive horde. I mean, this um, absolutely monstrous army. I think of the Gray Rats a lot as like the the orcs uh or the goblins you know like hauled up in the mines of moria like this gives me massive mines of moria vibes yeah on that same line this this where it is the urukai right like this is oh yeah this is <laughs> like an an elite fighter um I, do you get the uh the little um in your edition do you have the thumbnail art um yes okay <laughs> with the <laughs> yes the, the, it's he's it's, got no ears and he's just yeah. a, a giant hulk oh gosh yeah he's as bald as i am too like it, there's so much about him that is so unsettling but i also was confused because you read the paragraph about the where at and then the next page has that thumbnail but that's not the chapter that he's talked about right <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird i thought maybe it had like a misprint or something but no, I, I checked my earlier edition too, and it's the same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, he he just, this where it is uh, terrifying. I think that the where it's actually do exist in in real life. Like, I think they're an actual animal that is uh, from the crossbreeding of a weasel and a ferret because they're in the same um, family of of uh, animal, but they, they I, I think a where it, Forgive me if I'm wrong. I believe aware it is sterile, um, but I, I think they do exist in real life. I don't know, dude. I am looking it up. I'm Googling right now, and there's nothing about aware it being a, a real thing. Well, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> if all I'm seeing is that in the Yulela uh, subreddit, um, they're talking about it, the aware it being a weasel ferret hybrid. But you're saying in real life, this is a real animal? I thought, I thought it was. I thought I read that. I must be wrong. Well, if it Never is, mind. I'm not a biologist, so <laughs> I, th I thought this was a real, a real thing. If it <laughs> is real in real life, I'm just gonna put it out there. What have we done? <laughs> Why? <laughs> what did they do to us? You know, uh, to quote some. Uh, I think you should leave. What have they done well, to us? Uh, regardless. This is this is totally a, a a shadow trope, right? Oh, yeah, it has to be right because this is a, a unique power. We don't see any other where it's in this instance um, with a supernatural strength and I don't know, man, partial invulnerability. Like at least he's uh, like a some kind of a mutant like he's just uh, got crazy strength yeah it, it, stronger than the average weasel and rat for sure but then am i wrong that i, I mean matthias 
gives quite a few lethal blows to this um this beast and uh is undeterred by that right like <laughs> well so, yeah we this is not this they this is where they they discover the where it but this isn't where they actually fight um oh, it's just kind I'm of sorry the, i'm getting yeah. ahead of myself yeah you're right you're right but, okay but i mean you know as, as we'll talk about yeah like matthias matthias uh messes this thing up and and just can't drop him like just yeah. can't get through it. so yeah, yeah i think this is a shadow trope um yeah let us know if you're listening to this and uh you think that uh the where it is a shadow trope um uh, let us know yeah I'm, I'm gonna make the case that he is but in chapter 47 at Redwall, Strike slowly heals while Cornflower makes one last effort as the ghost of Martin to demoralize Ironbeak's forces. Oh, man, this is where it's three times it's too much. This is the third appearance <laughs> that she's doing. I think it's funny that she has this kind of conversation with um, with um, Abbott. Um, I want to say, is it Mortal? Mortal. No, Mordalphus, sorry, I was going to say Mortimer, and I was like, eh, that's not the right Abbott. Uh, she has this conversation with Abbott Mordalphus, and he's kind of like, this is enough, right? Like, you're you're doing things that, that are just going to endanger yourself. Um, and she says, well, I want to be brave. I want to, this, this is working, um, and I'm willing to risk, uh, I'm really, w w I'm willing, oh, sorry, I'm willing to take the risk in order to demoralize. Um, and it, it, and Mordalphus basically says, but I have the responsibility to keep you safe for Matthias. Like her argument saying, well, Matthias would be brave, so I should be brave. And he's saying, well, Matthias also wants you to be safe. And I'm responsible for that as the abbot. Um, so I thought this was a really cool exchange that they have. I think this gives so much more foundation to to cornflower as a character that i just really wish we saw more of in the first book i really wish we saw more of this in Redwall, um and i think this is a great character moment for her i really like this interaction that they have it reminds me a lot of like eowyn in a way um from yeah. lord of the rings and we've had a lot of references about that tonight um and uh yeah this is something i'd love to talk about more as a group um because i think that it it helps to write some of the things about Cornflower as a character that um, I just think is a great inclusion by Jake's. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Well, in chapter forty-eight, we return to Matthias and he fights the Weret in single combat. Meanwhile, Matameo and company hear the distant fighting from their cells. Logalog manages to find the cells and is able to see the Abbey children set free before he dies. Matthias is at last overcome by the Weret and thrown off a ledge. At Redwall, the Abbey-goers set Strike's broken wing while Ironbeak loses control of his demoralized soldier. Yeah, so I kind of talked about this in the previous um, chapter, but the single combat um is so tense like i i can't help but feel like this fight in the single combat is more intense than even the fight that matthias has with Clooney in the first book like he's mm. he's kind of winning but he's really losing because he's getting these strikes on the wear it but then also the wear it is completely undeterred by these efforts 
Um, I think there's even some like chanting from the crowd being like, okay, now Matthias is starting to heat up. This is going to end, end it all. And then Matthias gets kicked off the freaking ledge. Like he gets thrown off um, with his sword too, which is, uh, which kind of comes in later. So this is, this is one that I think um, kind of goes to show like, um, Matthias isn't invincible. <laughs> I, I really got the feeling yeah. here like, oh man, like Matthias is getting, um, he's kind of taking a beating in this fight and the single combat stance isn't really going to work because if he, if he loses, um, the, the battle's going to continue and that's what we, we kind of see. Um, in this moment though, uh, actually, I mean, I was going to say we, we find this is where Orlando steps in, right? Or is that in a different chapter? Uh, it's, it's the next chapter. Ah, shoot. Okay. Don't want to, don't want to spoil that. We'll save it for the next chapter. Um, now, Again, we've kind of talked about Logalog. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this kind of last moment with Logalog. I know that you're a big fan of him. Yeah, I, I make the case Logalog is the MVP of this book. Uh, I know William's going to fight me over it, but and I, I'm looking forward to that discussion. Um, Logalog being the one to find the Abbey kids and and basically completing his mission in the process um, is, is just, I, I think the perfect kind of punctuation to the life of this character. You know, we were introduced to Logalog in Redwall, where he hears Matthias out and agrees to accompany Matthias on one of the most dangerous journeys. Any, any of these, you know, creatures have ever taken against Asmodeus. And he, manages to make it out of that unscathed whereas the other gaussum you know don't necessarily manage that we come in in this book he sets matthias and company free you know he helps them escape their entombment by slagar and then logalog runs a successful campaign to maintain his leadership he leads his gaussum into battle alongside Matthias. He kills, he kills Stonefleck with a sword throw and then follows Matthias into this hellish dungeon, you know, this kingdom underground, and then manages to assist in setting the Abbey children free. Like, what an incredible <laughs> character. You know, what an incredible set of accomplishments and i think that his final feat completing his mission and issuing his uh you know his his successor it's just amazing um i was heartbroken when he finally died but at the same time i know that he he dies a warrior's death and i don't think that there is a character more noble in this book then perhaps uh you know maybe warbeak would would give him a run for his money but you know for me i really feel like you know he earns his place in the pantheon of one of the best characters uh in either redwall or matameo yeah definitely and i really love this um uh, as you kind of said his priority he has like a twofold priority 
the first is that he wants to um, kind of die in dignity. He wants to get above ground. And in doing so, he gets to fulfill his promise of finding the Redwall, the Redwaller kids, um, which is such a cool moment. Um, and then the other thing is that he's trying to like basically um, assign his successor, like as um, I believe it's Basil and Jess are the ones who are trying to staunch his wound. He says, where's Flug at? I need Flug. He's going to be the new log log. We need to continue this. Like it's he really steps up to be this leader. When when we first met log log, we had this um, this uh, with, with the Gaussum. They were just arguing about themselves and they were so disorganized. And then under his leadership, we now see a completely different gaussum and shrew group and we get to see this um very competent leader and succeeding in doing something that is very important to redwall as a whole which is finding matameo and and the kids this is just such a cool moment and i really i really cherish this a lot it's so hard to to i i agree with what you're saying him being like the mvp but i also think that um logalog i think i think he's his heartbreak is more than than Warbeak, like both of them losing them in this book is is really hard for sure um but i think in what he does for the overall story and what he does for um for matameo and crew i really do think that his death is way more impactful in my mind at least yeah i don't know i i i feel like i keep coming back to lord of the rings to make comparisons but uh i, I feel like this is the boromir moment you know <laughs> like, yeah it kind of is yeah yeah no yeah totally um, right. well rip logalog uh what uh, a fantastic Log-Log. character i, I absolutely know. love him you know yeah. one thing is that i would be sad to, I, I am sad that sounds bad i am sad to see logalog go but the nice thing about logalog is we always get another one i mean there was one in, <laughs> in moss power and we're, we got this one and flugs the new logalog we've we've got one coming again so i mean obviously can't re- replace the old but uh you know with jake's writing it's probably going to be somewhat consistent so um i'm just thumbing through the chapter trying to think of anything uh, the notes that i missed and one thing i wanted to point out from the previous chapter as a a moment that's just been a lot of fun is a cheek and bas like basil teaching cheek how to fight in this big brawl (laughs) and like him giving him some pointers of like the one two while basil himself is using his long limbs to kind of kick rats off the edge and stuff um (laughs) it was such a cool moment and it really has given me a complete 180 on cheek because um i thought that cheek was really annoying at first but i'm realizing that cheek is just a young basil right like that's oh, this yeah. is how exactly how <laughs> how cheek would be or how basil would be if he was younger and so it's I, really I, cool to see him take him under his wing it's been a lot of fun i think it's the next chapter where we find out that part of their battle strategy is to pick up rats and try to throw them all the way to Nadaz. And they're like, well, that one didn't make it. Let's try the next one. Yes, <laughs> they they go, they grab rats. One, you know, one gets the arms, one get the leg and they heave home. And Basil's like, yeah, we didn't really try, you know, like cheek, let's pick up another one and try it again. Like use your back more in this throw. It's wild. It's in, really in the funny. Meantime, doing, in doing so, they're, they're hauling them out to get impaled on these spears of the army like it's it's brutal (laughs) with each scene that basil is in he grows to be more and more my favorite character like i am not even kidding (laughs) i i might name my next child basil just because of how much i love this character (laughs) 
Don't tell my wife that. She doesn't know that yet. We'll we'll <laughs> ease her into it. That's hilarious. Well, in chapter 49, Matthias narrowly saves himself from a plunge by grappling with some rope near where the werret threw him over a ledge. But the werret manages to cleave Matthias's rope, causing Matthias to plummet. Orlando enters into a berserker's rage and renews the fight against Malchorus's horde. Down below, Matthias lands on Malchorus's own elevator basket, and the malformed polecat crawls out to confront the warrior mouse, only to be stoned to death by his own slaves. Matthias frees the slaves and heads back to the fight where casualties are mounting. Orlando's group is at last joined by Matameo, and Nadaz's fighting force pitches more battle. Meanwhile, Abbot Mordalfus calls off Cornflower's ghost charade, and Constance hauls Matthias's armor back to the gatehouse. Ironbeak spies her and locks her in the gatehouse in order to plan his final attack on Cavern Hole. I'm so glad that I keep reading my notes out of order so that we can not have to talk about the cornflower and rehash that in this chapter. And we can focus on the absolute body horror craziness that is Malchorus reveal in here. So the first thing I wanted to say with the fir- in my first notes, I reread this chapter twice purely because I didn't fully understand how Malchorus had been revealed right because he is in this elevator that goes up to the giant polecat statue right and Mm -hmm. he he lowers himself or he is lowered when matthias falls um he kind of takes him in the basket in in this elevator with him crashes onto it is is malchris dead on the impact or is he just like no dazed essentially no malchris crawls out of the basket um because remember, Matthias's sword falls, and Malchorus gets to the sword first, and is basically like, "I'm oh, gonna that's right. kill yeah. you now." But and then he starts before, getting buried. Yeah, yeah. Before he gets killed, uh, he gets he gets hit hit by a bunch of rocks as the slaves down on this lower level, um, who are who are working on excavating more of the kingdom of Malchorus. Um, yeah, the, the, the uh, Malchorus, uh, just gets <laughs> just absolutely bodied <laughs> by these slaves who chuck rocks at him until he's, he dies, basically crushed to death by a bunch of rocks. And M- Matthias, uh, gets his sword back and then sets free the slaves working. Um, and that's where we're introduced to, I think, a squirrel, um, who, who's, named here his name is elm tail uh and elm tail kind of you know joins up with uh matthias and and you know kind of forms this uh, little slave army to to go rushing back into orlando's direction yeah i love this interaction that matthias has with elm tail where they kind of just have this agreement of saying like well we can work together for freedom like Matthias is like, you can help us out of this and you'll be able to be free. And we really see this motivation grow inside um, th- this crew where Elmtel even says, I will buy my freedom with this chain that bound me as a slave. 
this is a really cool moment that they kind of have together in order to, uh, which we can see turns the battle kind of in later chapters. Um, I'm completely yeah. mistaken. I forgot. I think I just mentally blocked out this whole interaction with Malchris because Malchris does turn to Matthias and say, you've looked at me. Now you have to die. Like no one has seen yeah. me before you have to die. Okay. I have to ask the question, is this the sickness from Lomehedge? Is this just the one survivor or is Malchris a polecat that has only been, you know, only lived underground and has just turned into this decrepit, deformed? Uh, no, I, I I think Malchris is, is whatever this weird mutant polecat is. Um, I think there, there can be an argument made about kind of the corruption of, Malchris as a place, you know, like the the way that it has taken the ideals of Loam Hedge and become this, you know, kind of like infested, corrupted space. Um, but I don't think that that has anything to do with the sickness of Loam Hedge. I think it just has to do with this uh, character of, of the polecat. He's sickly, but he hides behind his ideological strength. And I think that is really what Jakes is going for. When I read this originally, I absolutely got Wizard of Oz vibes where the polecat is just using a bunch of theatrics in order to demonstrate a false sense of strength and through that um, amass power. But that power is diffuse, right? And, and again, this is like a weird contrast with Redwall, where we see that the the Mossflower warriors, the warriors like Orlando and Logalog and Matthias, have real genuine strength, and and that strength comes from their compassion. That strength comes from their um, you, you know kind of like striving for peace, but it, it it is an inner strength that is entirely whole to them and i think that's what powers them whereas malchorus is all empty strength right he's all bluss and blunder and that ties in perfectly with who slagar is because slagar as as cunning as he is as formidable a villain as he is he is not a formidable warrior that's never been his thing you know his origin story was letting someone else take the death blow for him so that he can survive and go off and do his own thing. He's always been a kind of behind the scenes power um, manipulating others. So there's this kind of like empty charisma, you know, this empty um, power wielded through fear and through um, cunning and and that's absolutely contrary to what we see with the moss flower uh, warriors. In chapter fifty, the battle of Malchris continues with Orlando's group waging pitched battle and holding ground. As the black robes continue to flow in, Matthias's slave army swells. Matthias is taken unawares by Slagar. But before Slagar can issue a finishing blow to Matthias, he is chased away by Matthias's new allies. Matthias rallies and spies Matameo fighting with Orlando's group. He enters a berserker's rage and cuts through the black robes to unite his forces with Orlando's, effectively turning the tide against Nadaz. 
At Redwall, General Ironbeak attacks Cavern Hole nearly uncontested. Just as he lines up the woodlanders for slaughter, Strike begins the fight, or Strike brings the fight to Ironbeak. A battle ensues, but Strike manages to kill Ironbeak in combat. Constance, escaped from the gatehouse, joins the battle and kills Mangus. The other Corvids are bested by the combined forces of the Woodlanders, and Redwall is finally retaken by its rightful heirs. Oh man, we have a lot to cover in this chapter. Um, why don't you cover the battle that's going on with Malchris, and I can cover what goes on um, back at Redwall. Yeah, so Matthias at this point uh, sees like the giant effigy of Malchris and, and comes to understand, you know, exactly what it is that Malchris envisioned, which is this, you know, kind of evil um, subterranean society uh, in worship of Malchris. It is not a society for the rats. It is a society for Malchris. Mm-hmm. And as he kind of sees this effigy, he is attacked by the, uh, uh, Slagar. Slagar knocks him out um, and nearly kills him uh, with the bolus. But it is Matthias's new allies, like Elmtail, who intervene and chase Slagar off. Slagar realizes that he's just going to have to regroup for another time, and he runs off uh, to to go above ground using the old well entrance from Loam Hedge to get above ground. I think it's really interesting because Slagar seems to realize that there's something missing in his own strength something that he needs in order to rule and he sees that as like a he needs a symbol and the symbol of of Redwall would be uh martin's sword he thinks that the sword is magic and will give him the power that he needs in order to consolidate his rule uh, but that never comes to pass because matthias rallies uh, he wakes up he sees his son He goes into a Berserker Rage, which I find, again, really interesting. We haven't named the Berserker Rage yet, but typically that Berserker Rage is reserved for Badgers and Badger Lords. So the the fact that Matthias can enter into this kind of blind fury that he only comes down from the moment he meets Matameo is another aspect of his warrior character that I think is really compelling and i want to revisit it when we see more of this berserker rage uh but anyway he, yeah. he reconnects with matameo and his forces and i think this is kind of the spiritual moment here when we know that they've won right we know that even though the black robes have not been completely defeated by this point uh it doesn't matter we have the the group back together and we see that this solidarity is going to be the thing that lets them win yeah there's so much um i i really like this this face off if you will between slagar and matthias i thought that this was going to be the final confrontation between the two so the fact that slagar uh, is able to get out by some of that prior knowledge uh when he toured uh uh um just really you know, kind of shows his cleverness, but uh, it's it's very tense. I mean, he knocks Matthias out with those bolas, and I I genuinely thought like, oh man, Matthias is just getting 
beat left to right. I mean, he just fell off a cliff and got saved by Elm tail tail and um, the slaves. And now he's being saved by them again. Um, but you're, you're right. Um, Slagar quickly realizes that with the sword, like he talked about that very early on, like, well, there's, there's a mouse, the magical sword. Like um, he, he really thinks that his path to victory is mysticism, right? Is magic. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not in, and in a way uh, I think that that's kind of what Malchus thinks too. I mean, he's kind of leading a, a, magic cult <laughs> i don't know maybe it's right. not true but well, um it's the inverse too of of like what matthias understands the sword to be yes it's a powerful symbol of course but he's been told on multiple occasions you know it's just a sword it's, it's just a just sword. a tool yeah. we, we're we're told that like three times we're told that in Redwall, uh boar you know, kind of has the same conversation with Martin as Martin inherits the sword. Mm-hmm. And uh, Matthias has the same conversation with Madame oh, yeah. at the beginning of the book, you know, kind of says like, this isn't, it's not a toy. It's not, it's not, you know, something that you just like bring around for fun. This is a weapon. This is a tool. And, and its power is defined in how you use it. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is also, it's kind of in, whatever is going on with Malchus is kind of in inverse as to what's going on with General Ironbeak, too, because I mean, he's relying on some magic as well with what's going on with Mangiz. And they have this, uh, this, uh, uh, belief that none of them are going to attack because it's hot, uh, it's summertime in the Abbey. And because of the sweltering heat, um, the Redwallers believe that they're kind of at a rest because um, General Ironbeak and his Corvids are also at a rest due, due to that same heat. But they don't actually know that they're uh, planning basically a, a way to stealthily sneak into Cavern Hole while there's no sentries because of the heat. And that's how they get the upper hand. And this is a pretty gruesome fight. Like um, they pin some of the Red Wallers to the wall. Uh, Constance is not there because she's stuck in the gatehouse, but she kind of realizes that she needs to get out and she needs to get out quick. Um, Jake's even uh, mentions that it's very often that some Red Wallers go out on their own for their own solitude. So it's not unusual that Constance is missing. However, Mordalfus is disappointed that she's not there to help out um, due to the heat. Like he's kind of disappointed that she's not there, um, but expects that she'd be there soon. And so the fact that they're really caught off guard, I think kind of goes to show to the inexperienced as warriors of the Red Wallers, right? Like they uh, in this com- this community uh, and their trust with each other, that that's kind of their downfall. They don't really expect that this is going to be happening. Um, however, their rehabilitation of uh, Strike is their ultimate salvation. And the fact that that Strike um, just comes in and uh, absolutely uh, guts general iron beak like it's not even a contest um in, in this battle like i'm i really imagine that um that uh similar to the pigeons getting absolutely destroyed by this red-tailed hawk in my <laughs> in my window uh something similar to that ha- happened here um and i i believe that man gets gets killed uh, let me reference the book real quick Con- constance hits him uh into the ceiling right yeah, not, knocks him into a wall or something and just uh, like breaks, <laughs> breaks him. Yeah, that's right. And so her timing is impeccable. With a too. Pan? 
Oh, 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 I completely misunderstood what was going on. It uh, Strike attacks um, General Ironbeak because General Ironbeak is harassing Sister May. And yep. they have this really tight relationship. And um, <laughs> Strike it sees this happening and intervenes and just slays him, like just out of uh, protection for uh, who she uh, um, affectionately calls Sissy May. Um, so that's a really cool moment too. That again, it's because of their their bond that what what could be a, a natural predator is instead their defender. Um, uh, that does not answer the question that you're asking, which is how Mangus dies. I don't know why I didn't have this in my notes. I'm pretty sure Constance hits him with a frying pan so hard that he flies into a wall and just crumples in a heap. Yeah, Mangus tried to flee. He took wing and left the ground, flying for the stairs and the ruined barricade. Constance was waiting. She stood with one paw, swinging strongly upward. As the crow drew level with her, she batted out hard. The seer crow hit the far wall of the cavern hole like a like a ripe fruit. Uh, then he slid <laughs> to the floor, never to rise again. Yeah, okay, so brutal. she just she just uh, like uppercuts him into <laughs> Mortal Kombat oblivion. Yeah, that's quite the fatality for sure. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, you know, I have I have a lot of complaints about this. I'm going to save it for the review episode. Um, but this was so satisfying that he that they finally get to take rain again of Redwall um, simply because of how long this has happened. <laughs> like this whole story, you know, it started in part, you know, book two um, and has just been this this kind of meandering ebb and flow between um, what what scheme is going to work on either side. So this final mm. confrontation to me was really satisfying. Although this this uh, kind of introduction of, of red uh, of strike, um, I have a lot of complaints about, but we're going to save the complaints mm. for the review episode. So I've complained enough about this. Um, I <laughs> cannot wait to talk about this next chapter. Yeah, it's worth noting. Uh, I think Nadaz kind of sees th things happening, and Nadaz slips into uh, Malchus's giant statue uh, to kind of like take up residency there. In chapter 51, Madame Mayo declares the slaves free of Malchus, and Orlando attacks the stone effigy of Malchus. With Matthias's help, Orlando breaks the underground kingdom's support pillar, causing the entire structure to collapse in a great earthquake. Matthias and Orlando narrowly escape along with Vich. At Redwall, the remaining Corvids are issued symbols of their excommunication from Mossflower and are escorted from Redwall by strike. Cornflower sets up a watch, to wait for Matthias to return. Yeah, so let's talk about this uh, lumberjacking of pure stone <laughs> that happens. This is, um, so you kind of talked about Matthias having this berserker rage earlier. This, to me, kind of showed um, in a similar fashion, you know, they're kind of going ham on this support beam or or the, the polecat. 
I saw this as like an equal measure of Orlando the Axe's strength compared to Matthias's strength, right? Like, oh, yeah. I couldn't believe that they were both going toe to toe to just hack this thing down. Where I was really impressed with Matthias that he was able to do this. I mean, Orlando is to be expected because he's a badger, right? But Matthias contributing too. Um, it was shocking. I, I, I think that this is quite the display of power that I'd love to learn more about. Um, and ho- hopefully something we kind of see a little later as you're talking about like the berserk rage. Um, mm. But they, they, they escalate it to the point where the entire kingdom collapses and it's really unsure if they survived. <laughs> like it's kind of crazy. Oh no, they, this... they absolutely do not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, sorry. Uh, Orlando and Matthias, they start running out oh, of the collapsing yeah. uh, of, of Malchris. They they start running out because they're they're terrified um, that the the entire um, kingdom is going to kind of cave in on itself. Um, and then I don't know why Cornflower. I mean, I, we're, we're seeing a lot that Cornflower is not seeing, so I guess I shouldn't be too harsh on her. Um, but the, the waiting for the return, the, the, the watch for the return. Um, I mean, we know he's going to return. So, um, <laughs> I just added my notes. Uh, I think Cornflower could fi- find something else to do until then, but I mean, whatever, <laughs> it's, it's not a big deal. But one thing I'd like to talk to you, I'd like to hear your thoughts are, are specifically the symbol, um, of the, uh, it's kind of like a chain that they put around, each of the remaining Corbett's necks to then send them out. What do you, what did you think about that? I, I I don't think it's too much different than what Martin does with his captives at the end of Moss flower. You know, there's this sense. I of, agree. Yeah. There's this sense of like excommunication for sure. Like you, you're, you're not allowed to return. You've proven that, but the effort in kind of, Issuing grace, um, I, I think, is, again, like keeping in the spirit of what we already know of Redwall, um, of this particular, you know, brand of, of Woodlander. Um, so I, I think it's a really interesting way of kind of like identifying these particular Corvids. It's like these are the ones that have transgressed. Um, but that show of clemency, you know, of allowing them to leave and never return, um, it, it, it's just once more, you know, kind of in keeping with the spirit of of uh, being peace lovers, you know, of, of, of um, offering atonement as a, opposed to, you know, as something a lot more uh, catastrophic. This whole chapter, I think, is full of this symbolic interaction right um there there is an understanding that uh penance must be done for wrongdoing and nadaz you know runs into this uh this giant statue of malchris and then orlando and, and madameo or not uh, madameo orlando and, and matthias you know rise up together to act to tear down this symbol of tyranny and in the process, literally tear down the entire kingdom of Malchus, um, even as Redwallers are, are kind of establishing a very different kind of justice, right? Um, they're kind of saying that because you have, you know, done so much 
wrong here. Um, you can't go, you know, without uh, like a mark, you know, without a, a real reminder of what you've done. Uh, but we are going to let you leave with your lives. And I think it's very similar to what Matthias also did with uh, the the Stoats or, or, or the Weasels or whatever um, from Slagar's crew. Yeah, yeah. It seems it kind of seems like the same um the same response that red wallers have because um, Martin does it with the stoats and weasels in moss flower. Uh, we see that happen with Clooney's crew. Um, although they don't get a, a good washing like they did in those <laughs> instances. So, uh, but it seems like there's always this kind of symbolic, um, the, this symbolic marking or if you will, um, of, of these that are given a second chance. Um, I'm curious to see if that's going to continue on what's going to happen with that. Um, but yeah, just, just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. In chapter 52, Matthias directs the woodlanders back to Redwall when Vich tries to make a break. He's slain by Slagar as he flees. <clears throat> when Matthias and Orlando give chase to the fox, Slagar falls into the old loam hedge well which becomes his tomb. Sir Harry reunites with the Redwallers over the mass grave of Malchris, and the Woodlanders turn back home. Man, why does Vich have to be done dirty like that? I know we are not supposed to like him <laughs> through this whole book, but when I read that, I was like, dang, dude, like Vich dies, you know, he gets hit with the bolas and he dies without a sound. Holy cow. I mean, I know, you know, we don't really like Draco Malfoy that much, but can you imagine that happened in <laughs> Harry Potter? You know, like he just gets <laughs> cursed and dies. Voldemort and like, just comes out and blasts him. <laughs> yeah, like what the heck? Yeah, I just thought that that was kind of cruel um, to happen. I mean, obviously Slagar is cruel, so um, but more from just like you know Jake's writing perspective, there's no redemption for Vich at all, um, which you know kind of goes along his his idea that if you're bad you're bad i guess um and you you deserve punishment for that but dang i just i did not see vich dying that was not on my uh madame bingo card um what was on my, my bingo card is yet another environmental death <laughs> what do you think about that trev yeah i i guess i wish that slagar was killed by the Red Wallers, but I also understand, again, symbolically why it doesn't happen. This whole book is kind of a treatise on revenge, right? Yeah. Revenge is what starts the book off. Revenge is what consumes both Matthias and Orlando to chase and Slagar in the first place. Madame and, and it gets a lot of, yeah, and, and Madame Ayo, you know, it gets a lot of them killed. It, it, yeah. The body count is huge for the Woodlanders in this book. And uh, we can talk about exactly how many deaths I think there are represented in this book abstractly in the big review episode. But I will say, you know, like Warbeak died for this. Logalog died for this. Um, we've seen a, a, a whole bunch of sh shrews get murdered for this. You know, nobody comes out entirely unscathed. Um, even those that make it, you know, come out with a lot of wounds and injuries. And I think that 
Had Matthias and Orlando gotten their hands on Slagar, it would have taken away from the symbolic power of Jake's kind of saying that revenge is a no-sum game, right? Like, we should all be called to action of of leniency, of grace, of, of kind of issuing forth that... Um, that you know, kind of goodwill. So, I think that any of that would be undercut if Slagar died any other way. So to to see him fall down a well, well, you know, I don't know. That's maybe that's an unfitting end for a really really good villain. But I also think that the subversion of these expectations is symbolically important for us to preserve the idea, the concept of. Um, you know, revenge not being a good avenue or or a healthy avenue to address. Yeah. yeah, and I think this is something that is not very apparent as you read the book, but then this ending with Slagar makes it way more apparent. I think you're you're totally right, and I I think this is a big theme we need to discuss in the review episode uh, because it it's pretty heavy handed with this death more so than like with Clooney or what we saw with Sarmina, right? Like it really is focused around revenge, but Madame Mayo not getting the revenge. I thought he was going to be the one to kill. I think you can listen back to episode uh, one where I say that like, well, Madame Mayo is going to kill Slagar, right? Like I I didn't know that this was going to happen. So uh, that to me is really surprising, but I think it had to happen the way that it had to happen. I really think Jake's made a good decision here. I'm disappointed that Vich didn't kill him. And then Vich himself goes on to be, you know, a twisted, maniacal, cruel slave driver later on. Like that would have been kind of something Mm -hmm. cool to see. Like he's like a strange apprentice to Slagar. Um, But I, I think, I think this is probably the right, the right call for sure. Yeah. I have, um, man, do I have a lot of hot takes of, of how I would change this book. Uh, but but I might <laughs> I might bring that up in the the big review the review yeah, yeah. W- the fact that we're you know uh, this episode will probably be two hours um, <laughs> goes to show <laughs> right <laughs> uh, we need to have a structure around the review episode specifically around some of these talking points because I think there's so much that we have I think we have so much more to say in Matameo that is good and bad and and divisive um, than we did about yeah. Mossflower that um but I, I i think it'd be great to explore some of these ideas yeah yeah absolutely well uh i'm just gonna speed through to the end here because the next couple of chapters really don't give us a whole lot uh but there's some stuff as the story wraps up um that that i think we can pause to talk about so in chapter 53 uh at the commencement of the autumn season matthias and his company return home to redwall reunited all the abbey dwellers exchange news chapter 54 the red wallers gather for an autumn feast and in chapter 55 tim churchmouse is the new abbey recorder who sums up what has happened seven seasons later john churchmouse has retired and tim has been recorder for two seasons the escaped slaves of Malchorus have all settled in Redwall. Nespera are repopulating, and their loft has been renamed Warbeak Loft. 
Sir Harry the Muse resides with the Spera as their leader. Cheek was adopted by Basil Staghair three seasons ago. Jabez and his family moved into the cellar, and Strike found a mate and has her first hatchling named after Sister May. The cellar is to be expanded, and the tunnels used during the Corvid occupation are being expanded into features of the Abbey. Constance is retiring, and Alma will soon be the Abbey mother like Constance was, once was. Rollo and Cynthia Bankville are the new bell ringers, and Sam has formed the Mossflower Patrol. Orlando and Constance have built a kinship over their seasons. Logalog Flug has flourished in his new role. Matameo is to be christened as the new Redwall champion, and he has married Tess. Together, they have a son named Martin. All are well, and so the seasons continue. Sorry, there's someone cutting onions in my basement right now, so I have to wipe some tears away to get through (laughs) this episode. Uh, All jokes aside, I love this ending. I think this is my favorite ending out of all the books that we've read so far. Um, There's just so many cool things in here. The traditions from Redwall being carried on, I love to see that with these recurring characters that we know from the first Redwall book, like Tim Churchmouse, like Tess and Madame Mayo getting married. Um, I love that we get this kind of memorial for Warbeak in in the loft. Um, And then my absolute favorite, this is not on my bingo card for Madame Mayo at all, (laughs) but Cheek being adopted by Basil is so cool to see. Um, I loved that detail and it's kind of cool to see, you know, the bonding that they have throughout this journey to be the thing that leads to this father son kind of relationship. Um, and I said it earlier, Cheek is just the younger version of Basil, right? So um, <laughs> yeah. it's cool to see that development happen. I there's there's a lot that I really love about this this end, um, but probably the 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 number one thing. Maybe I just just said Basil is the number one thing. I don't remember. Uh, the number one thing is the introduction of uh, Matthias to Matameo to Martin. This continual re-embodiment of the champion of Redwall and it being Martin. I think that this is a very poignant thing from uh, from Jake's. Uh, the naming of Martin is very specific to this re-embodiment idea um, and that this this champion, this, Mar- you know, coming full circle, I think even says it's come full circle yeah. that now the next champion is Martin. This is so yeah. satisfying. <laughs> I love, I love that detail. Yeah, uh, these these chapters always seem to get me uh there there were a couple of times when i mean i like really broke down uh logalog's death hit me so hard emotionally um <laughs> I, I i don't think i've recovered from it um but the last lines too um if, if if you have the book open just read those last lines for me because they're so beautiful yeah, may your lives be full and happy as ours, and may the seasons be kind to you and your friends. The door of our abbey is always open to any travelers roaming the dusty path between the woodlands and the plains. That message to me um, hit me on this reread so much harder than I think it ever hit me when I was a teenager reading these books. 
Um, in 20 some odd years, you know, a lot has happened in my life, a lot of good, a lot of bad, but coming back to these books and, and seeing that line specifically, you know, this idea of revisiting Moss Flower for respite just hits me all the more. Uh, this is a dark book. This is a heavy book. This is a very emotionally taxing book in a lot of ways that I don't think I expected, you know, going in, in my thirties, <laughs> but you know, this idea, whether it be, you know, literal, like, you know, welcome to Redwall or something more philosophical about the place of literature and art in our lives and the way that Redwall serves as both an escape from a lot of difficult issues um, but also, you know, just serves as this place to come back to the ideas that I think, you know, em empowered me so much as a teenage reader or informed so much of my life going forward, crafting the kind of spirit that I want to incorporate in my life as much as possible of, you know, of charity, of, of, uh, camaraderie, of community. Um, it, it just it, like encapsulated for me the entire you know kind of philosophy of why i love art in the first place why i go to these stories um why i find them so compelling even 20 some odd years after i've read them the first time um there's a magic in these books that i think is just so great to to come back to um from time and time yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't have the same experience because this is the first time reading it, but, um, this open invitation just shows how much, um, it, it helps me to understand how cherished this world is and how cherished it is by so many other readers and, um, makes me incredibly excited for future books. I, I think, if you didn't know that there were, uh, what is it, 19 other books after this, I think that reading this may seem like a little bit of a final goodbye to uh, the Redwall story. However, reading this is the open invitation to way more that happens, you know, so many more books to come. And so that gets me really excited. And and this this finale goes to show that it's it, it kind of makes the um, story... Um, live a little bit more right like we know that there's going to be so much more that happens and we have this progression and um as uh tim is saying you know this is full circle we know that this circle is going to you know it's going to come around again and so in that way i i, I really cherish this um this book in tandem with Redwall, I think it makes me like Redwall more. I, we're going to talk about it in the review episode, but I really think that this this book overall enhances Redwall and fixes a lot of the complaints I had about it. And it's something that's just really enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we close out, um, as we always do, I want to talk about some memorable side characters and some memorable vermin. So we really only get a couple of new side characters in book three, but we get Strike Red Kite and Elm Tail. Yeah, both two characters that kind of show up. Um, for my vote, I'm going to go with Elm, Elm Tail because I think that al although Strike is the one that kind of resolves uh, the uh, Strike is the one that resolves the general Iron Beak um, 
story arc. Um, I think Mtail and the rallying that we see with Matthias and kind of turn the tides in Malchris is the bigger impact in, in my mind. Um, hmm. Even though that um, we don't really see them on the page all that much. Um, I just, I think that the, that development and the, the slaves kind of coming together and uh, being able to then be reincorporated into the Abbey uh, is really, is really cool to see. Um, so for me, I'm going with Elm Tale. I think I'll probably go with Strike uh, personally, just because I I do like that uh, you know kind of camaraderie with uh, Sister May, and I I do like that she just cleans General Ironbeak's clock so efficiently. Um, I I liked that bit. Um, I wish that we had more Elm Tail because I I felt like he could have been a really great character. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I kind of wish that we had more of him in the book. Well, with uh, memorable vermin, we have Malchris, we have the Werret, and we have Nadaz. Yeah, I think we technically saw all but the Werret in previous seasons, or sorry, <laughs> previous um, chapters, um, parts. Man, I am like bring. Uh, having a brain <laughs> blank. Uh, so I'm going to start that over. I think we see Malchris and Nadaz in um, book two. Um, but for me, it's got to be the where it this, this whole abomination that shows up on the page that is an equal foil to Matthias is honestly just kind of crazy to me. Like this is something that I did not expect to happen. Um, I love a good shadow trope. Uh, definitely the most memorable fight that we see in book three. Um, it's it's the wear it for me. I think it's the wear it for me as well. Um, <laughs> in my original read through of this book, I remember, I remembered what happened to Malchus. Uh, I I remembered a little bit what happened to Nadaz, but I remembered the wear it a whole lot. <laughs> And I think that this fight between the Were and Matthias is absolutely a standout moment of this third book. Um, it's it's such a wild inclusion. Um, and I, I loved the menace. I loved the horror. Just, you know, this uh, idea of this like weird mutant creature um, kind of coming up from the underground. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. As much as it is a, a shadow trope, I... I, do, I love those shadow tropes so yeah i love those shadow tropes too i will never never not be um i'll never i'll always pick the shadow trope <laughs> i'll i'll be always my default for that yeah all right well that is our discussion on book three malchris i cannot believe that we've wrapped up madame mayo and we're going to be doing that big review episode so stay tuned for that episode that will be coming out um, if you want to support the show, the best way that you could do that is to give us a review wherever you're listening to this. Uh, so if that's on Apple podcasts or Google podcasts, that review really helps us to become more visible and to, um, get more people to kind of join in the discussion and join this great community that we're trying to build. Um, you can also, um, follow us on Instagram or threads at books in badgers. That's with an N in the middle. Uh, that's also a great way to reach out to us. If you have any questions, 
Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, you can email us at booksandbadgers at gmail.com. Again, that's books and badgers with an N between books and badgers. And then lastly, if you're a big fan of horror and want to hear some great interviews, um, or maybe you're kind of moving to the Christmas season, but you're still looking for a little bit of that spooky season, be sure to check out Trevor's podcast, Slay House, Slay House Presents. Um, you have a lot of really cool things coming up. As always, I'm constantly surprised by the number of guests that you have on the show. And, um, you know, I find myself going into bookstores too and seeing, you know, books on the shelf of authors that you have interviewed, which is just nuts. So, um, yeah, it, it, be sure to check that out. Uh, lots of cool things happening over there. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about, uh, December's lineup. I've got Jacob Stephen Moore coming in to talk about some uh, epistolary horror. I've got Sonny Moraine coming in to talk about a very creepy book that comes out in February. I've got uh, Amy Avery coming in to talk about a really cool new fantasy novel. Um, there's going to be some fun stuff, uh, including our little year-end wrap-up where um, my wife Caitlin and I as co-hosts will come in and talk a lot about some of our best experiences this year, some of our best reads, and some of those uh, recommendations as we reflect on what a bumper crop (laughs) of literature has come from 2023. That's awesome. Yeah, love love, love those kind of roundup episodes. Uh, Great to see that for the end of the year. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time in our Matameo review episode. Bye.